from Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 19 through 23. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, and not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Father in heaven, it is a humbling privilege and awesome opportunity to bring the scriptures before your people. With Isaiah, I confess the unworthiness of my lips apart from your cleansing fire. May you purify my lips and purify the minds and hearts of each one who hears me so that they, uh, we would all shout your praise. Praise to Jesus who reigns. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, recall last week, and since many of you weren't here due to this illness that's spreading, I'll be doing some recapping. But last week, recall that I shared with you my personal story, that when I was an atheist, I thought like an atheist. I attributed the entire material universe to naturalistic causes. But when God renewed my life and I became a Christian, I then thought like a Christian. Uh, Prior to that, I believed what the uh, science books and my teachers at uh, school told me, uh, the earth was on the order of billions of years, but after my conversion, I accept what God and the Bible tell me. Uh, prior to my conversion, I scoffed at what those Bible-toting evangelicals told me about the nature of reality, but uh, after my conversion, I now pity those who don't have their eyes open and their hearts turned soft like God graciously did for me and then can be able to accept the clear statements of Scripture. So note that uh, this is about Uh, not about evidence. It's about belief. And I believe the core issue is belief. Evidence can either harden or it can uh, perhaps make us question our preconceptions. But it's those preconceptions that bring about our belief. The core of the evolutionist belief, their faith, is that there is not a transcendent God. And from that follows the naturalism and the humanism that leads to all these uh, problems that we see. The core of the Christian's faith, however, is that there is a transcendent God. And that faith then leads to uh, the facts revealed in the Bible and all that follows thereafter. So it's a question of belief. Where do we start? Unfortunately, I think many Christians have compromised their faith in the transcendent God and have, uh, that is revealed in the Bible, and they've hybridized it with the faith of the evolutionists to a greater or lesser degree. They think they have to do so because evidence and science uh, supposedly demand it. But uh, there is tons of research that shows that we do not need to accept those, quote, facts of science at face value. And I'm not going to digress, but just a few interesting facts. The fact that there are human artifacts in coal beds, that there are human footprints uh, fossilized right alongside or on top and underneath those of dinosaur footprints is clear evidence that speaks against the conclusions that your standard scientist brings up. So avoiding that rabbit trail of all that interesting evidence, suffice it to say, there is not overwhelming, incontrovertible evidence that necessitates an old earth. In fact, there is evidence that demands and requires a young earth in addition to the clear statements of Scripture saying that. So unfortunately, Christians have made concessions, and I argue unnecessary concessions. A sad thing is that uh, not only are they trying to synthesize the Bible with something that isn't even valid, but by doing so, we end up losing uh, the faith and the tenets of the faith that are built upon that foundation. So it's not just a first-level error, uh, it's a second- and third-level error as well. And last week I showed you that when we consider the entirety of Scripture, every single detail, we see that the earth must be young. So the very truth of Scripture is at stake. Uh, What I want to demonstrate today, then, is the implications of having made that error at the foundation level. If we do take it to the next step, what happens? Uh, If we substitute secular science in place of the authority of the scriptures, uh, the whole building is going to come tumbling down. It may come tumbling down slowly. It may come tumbling down half now and half later. But uh, critical portions of the uh, building of Christianity will come down. Uh, If God did not create the world in the span of six calendar days, or using the 
wording I had last week, six distinct consecutive contiguous calendar days, uh, then we will run into problems. Uh, if we take it to the extreme, there's no basis for sin. There's no uh, knowledge of the extent of the fall. There's no cause for redemption. Uh, if we don't quite take it that far, we lose those uh, critical doctrines and various shades of gray. Um, and, well, I ask you, what happens if we lose some or uh, a portion or all of these critical doctrines? And it's Christianity that we lose. Uh, it's, it's not just that we have a zero. We've lost something. We're back to zero. We're actually less than that because if Christianity is emptied of this power, it's worse. It's the doctrine of demons. It leaves people without hope. We cannot, we must not compromise on these principles, on these doctrines. Uh, I acknowledge that within this group and anybody who uh, may listen to this recording later, I'm speaking to a broad audience and I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. And uh, I see the audience in three parts. One is people like me back when I was in high school, uh, uh, unbelievers, people who do not see the light of Scripture. And I call on you to submit to the Lord who is seated on his throne, who is reigning, who one day you will stand before and face that judgment. I call on you to cease from your labor on this day of rest, cease from your labor of resisting God, of denying him, and accept his reality and have him rule your life. Uh, Second, I speak to uh, the believers in those other theories we discussed last week, those not the clear teaching of Scripture, the uh, calendar day uh, position as I laid out, and I call on you to not have other authorities in addition or alongside or perhaps above the authority of Scripture and to see uh, these clear statements and the implications for what they are as fundamental to the truth of Scripture. And third, I speak to those who do accept the calendar day uh, teaching of Genesis and all that follows from it. And we need to know the reasons for our faith. We need to be able to defend it out in the public sphere and among our neighbors, uh, perhaps in discussing with people at other churches, either in our denomination or elsewhere. Uh, We are stewards of the great truths of God, and it's not for us to hide under a bushel, but to be prepared to share those with the people we encounter. Our opposition doesn't compromise, and neither should we. Well, last week, if you recall the criteria that I laid out, and I did spend a a fair amount of time discussing the criteria, because I think once we make the criteria clear, it all falls into place. So just to recap, and uh, on the back side of your sermon outline, um, I did a summary. It's the upper portion above the dark horizontal line is what we discussed last week. Below the horizontal line, uh, dark line is what we're going to cover this week. Uh, But last week, based on that statement of creation, the Westminster Confession of Faith, We looked at this criteria that it requires God as the creator, uh, that he created everything, that he did it to manifest the glory of his power and his wisdom, or as I summarized there, to exhibit his attributes generally. He did it out of nothing, he did it at the beginning, and he did it in the space of six days. And recall, I further established uh, narrower, i.e. exegetically accurate, I hope, uh, definition of day so as to remove any question about what it means for that last criteria in the space of six days. And we saw that the non-calendar day theories, the other uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, the other six uh, do not uh, meet all the criteria. They failed on on one, two, three, maybe five or six levels uh, that they failed these criteria. And so to briefly summarize that, uh, naturalistic evolution uh, by completely eliminating God fails on all six. Uh, They're O for six. A theistic evolution uh, does acknowledge God as a creator, Uh, but they limit God's creation to acts of providence as he worked with existing materials and spreads this creative act or process over billions of years, so they violate that time frame. Uh, Day-age theory similarly spreads creation out over billions of years by adopting a particular uh, interpretation of the word day, and uh, we argue that does not agree with the linguistic context, and so hence they again violate the time frame issue. Uh, analogical days and gap theory similarly uh, take uh, or insert time elsewhere. Analogical days by taking an analogical meaning of the word day. A gap theory by inter- inserting uh, the years of the evolutionary uh, record into a gap between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1. Um, the framework theory uh, conveniently avoids any time frame issues by saying it's all just allegory and it doesn't speak. It might be a different order, spread out over time, who knows, we're not answering that question. Uh, it's not the relevant topic in Genesis 1 is what they say. Uh, so you'll see they approach these things differently, but uh, they all make a similar error about time frame. But I don't want you to think uh, that I'm being nitpicky on dwelling on this whole young earth um, issue. It's not incidental, I hope you've seen. 
uh, and I ask you, is it such a big deal that the days of creation are 24 hours? Or is it such a big deal that the earth is young? Um, is it such a big deal that this all happened not all that long ago, on the order of maybe five, 10,000 years ago? Uh, so overall, as, you, as I mentioned last week, and as the title of our talk today is, what does it matter? Why does it matter that the earth is young and these are days as we know it? And the simple answer to that is the only reason it's a big deal because I think scripture uh, clearly teaches these details. Every single detail of scripture is important and other things follow from it. So it's a big deal to me because it's a big deal to the authors of scripture and hence to God himself. Uh, Scripture indeed tells us a bunch of things that science doesn't agree with, that science doesn't like, and it's not for us to just pick and choose. Uh, Scripture says, and science denies, that all of humanity is descended from one human being whose name is Adam. We claim that we actually know his name. They say it was some hominid uh, millions of years ago. They also deny that all humanity descended from this person, not just biologically, but spiritually, and that um, his sin... uh, is also inherited in the rest of the population and that the world uh, bears some uh, implication in the sin of Adam. These are all things that scientists deny. So it may not seem like it's a big deal to insert the billions of years, but by doing so, as we'll see, uh, they all agree in doing that uh, we lead into these other errors, these implications relating to Adam. And uh, I should note, uh, just to clarify, there's... Uh, a different ways or different degrees to which these theories all buy into evolutionary time frame. Obviously, naturalistic evolution, theistic evolution, uh, day, age, and gap do explicitly. They say there is billions of years, and this is how we, are, we see it in the Bible. Um, but I sh- don't want to lump the framework and analogical days in there similarly. They technically say they're kind of ambivalent. The days, the analogical days may have been super long, adding up to a billion years. They may not have. And again, framework says we don't really have any opinion, uh, quote-unquote, about the age of the earth. But um, I really think that the way that these latter theories are articulated is at least to allow room for the evolutionary time frame. And really more truthfully, if you want to know my answer, I think they're articulated so as to really give it cover. So that's why I'm saying that there's a common error among all these. It has to do with the evolutionary time frame. Some of them require it, some of them permit it, but I really think even those who permit it at the minimum level are implicitly and explicitly supporting it. Well, I've chosen to follow uh, follow up on that one uh, overarching error that they all have in common, the issue of the time frame, and I'm going to focus on one implication. There's many, but one implication of that overarching error, and that is uh, the issue of sin. And this is because sin, obviously, is so fundamental to the teaching and ministry of Jesus, hence it's fundamental to uh, Scripture and fundamental to uh, the Christian faith. Uh, The presence of sin and how to deal with it is a critical thread running throughout Scripture. Uh, Beginning with its existence, evolutionists deny that there's anything such as sin. Uh, They may speak of right and wrong, but they cannot definitely buy the biblical definition of sin. This is because they can't accept that there's an existence of a God who makes the rules, that there's an existence of a God God whose rules men violate. Uh, So by taking that out of the picture, they obviously have no concept of sin. Thankfully, these other uh, evangelical and still orthodox theories do not uh, ditch that. I don't want to uh, paint them with that brush. Uh, Similarly, uh, our brothers and sisters in the Lord also accept the source of sin. They believe that death entered the world through one man, uh, Adam, as it says in Romans 12. Uh, This fact, obviously, uh, evolutionists do deny. Uh, They definitely do not say that sin, all the problems, death, decay, thunderstorms, whatever, are uh, the result of the actions of a human being. That's just preposterous in their opinion. Uh, They say death has been part of the system. In fact, it is the whole reason for the system. It's the reason why everything came to be. Uh, It's obviously not surprising that atheists would deny uh, and come up with some other reason uh, instead of these basic truths of scripture on the uh, existence and result of sin. But it's altogether tragic when Christians, and by that point I mean theistic evolutionists, uh, when Christians either accept it whole heartedly or partly, as I think the others do. And the reason why, um, and this may be somewhat controversial, but the reason why I think that even these other orthodox theories are uh, tending towards denying this second point about sin is that by uh, defending the evolutionary time frame, by inserting these uh, old earth concepts, they cannot take the full value of Paul's words. They cannot truly accept what Paul says there in Romans 5.12, 
and in Romans 8, as we read at the beginning, and we'll get back to in a second. Uh, the gap day age framework and analogical day theories by allowing for this large time frame, allow for death to be before uh, the life of Adam and uh, millions of years prior to Adam's existence. And this runs up against Paul's words and we must not allow them to do this. So let's take a closer look in order to pin down this issue of the effect of sin and to say it's not just limited to the spiritual death of Adam in the garden because that's what they'll say. Uh, there was animal death for millions of years before Adam but, uh, this, and the spiritual death was just coming from Adam's sin and indeed Adam's physical death uh, is unrelated to that sin but we must answer no to both of those conclusions. There's a threefold effect of Adam's sin. First, it affected his spirit so the spiritual de- death does come about. Uh, it affects man's body so that physical death is a result of that same fall and it affects all of creation so that physical death among animals is a result of the fall. And here, don't let people uh, misguide you by tossing out a red herring of, well, what about plants? You know, a carrot dies when Adam ate it in the garden, an apple dies when he ate it off that tree. Well, the Bible does not define a plant as living in the same sense as uh, certain classifications of animals and of human beings. So don't let them distract you with that. Um, And even, you know, they'll say, what about carnivorous fish? Well, um, it's proven that cats, you know, lions and tigers and zoos do not have to have a full flesh-eating diet in order to live. So even carnivorous animals could have survived for a while on a vegetarian diet. So don't let them assume what they see now. Read that back into the past and make those conclusions to throw you off track. Um, And some scriptures here are listed on your outline in that heading that you can follow up later. But those are the basic texts for concluding like in Genesis uh, 3.23, the issue of spiritual death, the separation from God uh, that happened as a part of the fall. Uh, We know from Genesis 5.5 that Adam ultimately physically died, um, albeit at 930 years, uh, but he did physically die. Uh, Paul says in Romans 5.12, as I've already mentioned, that death came to all men. He repeats that in his letter to Corinth, uh, for in Adam all die. Um, So obviously we have to uh, conclude, well, what's the scope of all? All has different meanings in scripture, but here he is speaking of all humanity. So there we answer those two questions about uh, physical and spiritual death of people. But that last, uh, the third effect of the fall is the really crucial one here when we get into evolutionary time frames and the scope of death as it relates to creation. And I will say, and um, there's two scriptures that are critical first is the nature of the curse if reading through genesis 3 it's a verse 17 the very first facet of the curse is against creation it's a curse against the ground and it's then only later uh, that he gets into the curse against human beings and so that first principle of the curse is against the creation and also as we already read and let me quote again verses 20 and 22 from romans 8 where he says for the creation was subjected to futility for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together. So it's that together. There is a connection between the groaning and laboring of the creation and the groaning and laboring of human beings. Because um, of this curse, the creation is not operating the way it was originally designed to. Uh, Because of the fall, uh, human beings are not operating the same way that they are designed to. And, uh, but the critical thing here, and what I think is potentially an implication of detaching these uh, cause and effect in the ancient past, is detaching what happens uh, in the future with the result of redemption. Because again, in these verses that we already read, uh, the redemption is tied together as well. But we're going to get to that in a moment under um, the next point about the consequences, or the cure, rather, I'm sorry. So avoid skipping ahead. But to emphasize again, this is a vitally important point, this issue of death and the scope of the curse. Because if we narrow that, uh, I think we're narrowing it unbiblically. And by doing so, we allow them to use this death issue long before Adam. So to say the earth is old and the fossils were laid down long before Adam, be it in a pre-Adamite world or be it in uh, ages, these day ages before Adam or in analogical days before Adam, whatever the case may be, by putting death in some expanded time frame long before Adam, for that matter, even if it's 24 days before Adam, um, there is a problem running up against Paul's teaching here of the parallel groaning and travailing of the creation and the fall of man. So I hope that's conclusive for you. Very, very important. Well, moving to this next point on the issue of sin, uh, the consequences, just relating to judgment. Uh, skeptics realize that if God is not involved uh, in creation at the beginning and if physical death is unconnected 
uh, either of people or of uh, creation, if physical death is unconnected to sin, and further, that there's no penalty for breaking his rules, they think they can run around, do whatever they want, then there's no need to fear him in the future. So you see how this leads from one step to the next. Um, when they remove the flood, which is a common tactic, they remove an example of past judgment. And uh, I'm not saying, and this leads to potentially denying future judgment. And by saying that, I'm not implying that a day ager uh, by you know, talking about a local flood is saying, oh, there's no hell. I don't think they've gone that far. Uh, but certainly evolutionists, when they look and say, oh, it's just the, the uh, uh, fossil record that gives us uh, a reason uh, over you know, billions of years for these fossils. It's not isolated to one particular catastrophic worldwide flood event. They are excusing, uh, dismissing, ignoring an example of God's past judgment, and that allows them to do the same for the promise of future judgment. So I want to just briefly take a look at uh, the problems that any Christian who agrees with a local flood runs up against. And this is all for the point of defending an example of God's past judgment so that we can know full and well that the future judgment is true. And uh, it's because science says that the universal flood didn't happen and the Bible says it does that people who compromise with this evolutionary time frame and evolutionary conclusions have to come up with some way to reconcile this. And as I mentioned, one of the ways to do that is to say it's local. But again, when you make a one, an error in one spot, it leads to other spots as well. And uh, let's look at a, a number of ways this just does not work out. Uh, if the flood was local... Uh, Noah did not need to build an ark. He could have hiked over the, the mountain ridge and headed on to the next safe zone. He did not need to spend all that time and the ridicule of his neighbors building an ark. Um, also, the Bible describes the water is rising a certain measure up above the tops of the highest mountains. Well, you know that tops are top and then ridges drop down. Was there a wall of water? What kept it from pouring over to the next valley? This just does not make sense. Uh, further, the Bible says that uh, all human and land animals um, not on the ark perish. Well, if it was just miraculously contained with walls of water going up over the mountaintops in this one local region, why was the animal life spread throughout the world affected? There would have been uh, no reason for that to be a problem. Uh, finally, and this is a critical one, God promised Noah, as we know through the covenant promise of the sign of the rainbow, that a similar judgment by water uh, would not happen uh, forever. It just would not happen. Uh, so if people are saying that this is a local flood, this gives room for the skeptics to say, you know, that flood down in Mississippi, all these other local floods throughout history, that's no big deal. FEMA can deal with the, the judgments of your God. I don't need to worry about that. And so again, uh, compromising and, and attempting to harmonize uh, evolutionary science conclusions with uh, the truth of Scripture does not work. It ends up calling God a liar and leaves people in their rebellion. It leaves them free to ignore it, saying, that wasn't a, a problem in the past. I don't need to worry about it in the future. Uh, God has told us that he judged sin in the past and how he did it, and he's told us that he's going to do it and how he's going to do it in the future. And even this detail of how it's going to happen in the future runs up against evolutionary theory. They say, and there's, there's various ideas on how this is going to happen, but they say that uh, the, cur the current theme is after uh, various th uh, trends, cycles, of heating and cooling, you know, global warming, then we'll have global cooling, heating, cooling. Uh, we're going to end up, the sun's going to run out of juice at, at some point. It's going to run out of gas, literally, and we'll be on a frozen wasteland. That is a direct opposite from what's going to happen according to Scripture, saying that a fire is going to burn up and purify, renew the earth. So again, even at the end point, you have two opposites. Is it going to be freezing or is it going to be fire? We choose our path. We choose the truth that we want to accept and we must accept the truth of Scripture. Well, the last uh, aspect of the doctrine of sin uh, that I promise here is its cure. And again, that tying together of how sin is washed away with Christ. If they deny the unity of creation and of man under Christ, uh, it's a direct parallel to the unity of man and creation under Christ for redemption. Um, 1 Corinthians 15:22. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So that's speaking there of humanity. But we go back to Romans 8:22 and 23 uh, again to look at how the creation is linked to man. So for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, and not only they, but we, that is his people also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption 
of our bodies. So this redemption under Christ is tied together. There's no other way for a human being to get redemption other than through Christ. There's no other way for creation to be restored except through Christ as well. Well, so in total, we see the implications of adopting uh, the evolutionary theory uh, in total. And again, this is, I'm going to first say the extreme case here and don't want to assume that the others believe this. But accepting it in total leads to denial of sin, leads to denial of judgment, leads to denial of redemption. But again, adopting it in part, and this is what I think these other theories are guilty of, leads to denying the full scope of the curse, as it's said in Scripture to be due to Adam's sin. It denies uh, the full scope of past judgment, as Scripture says, and it denies the full scope of redemption, as Scripture says. We must accept the totality. We can't just compartmentalize, narrow down, make it smaller, make it fit into our minds. We must accept the totality, the full scope. So a Bible full of billions of years is not full of the full scope of God's teaching, either on the extent of the curse, on the uh, nature of his judgment within history as we know, and uh, also it is empty of the full scope of the redemption in the future. Well, there are other doctrines I could cover, but I want to focus on this one because it's critically important to uh, our Christian life, our Christian expectation of the end, and uh, it, it bears on so many critical doctrines. But now... Uh, for the next point, I want to take sort of two steps back. We began last week with the foundation, showing what these various foundations are, and we just discussed one implication of the foundation. But I want to take two steps back to look at the, the underpinnings that led to these foundations in the first place. And this is because uh, the error really becomes, uh, the error emerges at that beginning level that then leads to mistaken foundations, which then leads to these mistaken conclusions, these implications we just discussed. And... Uh, Really, it has to do with the implications for knowledge of, of reality. How do we know? How do we know God? And uh, that is the critical thing here. Uh, we must not sacrifice how God has said we can know him. Um, so, in order to know God, uh, we must look where he's revealed himself, right? There's no other way to know God but then how he has revealed himself. Uh, to seek an alternative approach is to do the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. They pursued an alternate path to knowledge than what he had set out for them. Uh, scripture tells us that man's reason is corrupt. We can't uh, reason on our own. As part of the fall, our thinking is misguided, so we come to wrong conclusions. This isn't to say that we're just complete imbeciles, that uh, unsaved people, um, you know, we know that they're very intelligent. Um, these scientists have much higher IQs than I do, I'm certain. And uh, it isn't to say that they're completely stupid, that they cannot reason. Uh, they may lack wisdom in the biblical sense. They most certainly do, but they're not stupid. They can still invent things. They can operate their cars. They can do math, etc. Uh, they're not completely devoid of the image of God. That's why they still have some reason. Their unaided reason is still useful in many ways because of the image of God. Uh, saved individuals obviously fare some better, but we are not infallible. Our minds have been renewed, as Scripture promises, and hopefully as we experience. Uh, we see truth more clearly. We see things that we didn't see before, but we're not infallible. Uh, David, for example, was a man after God's own heart, and he thought he could get away with adultery and murder. He was definitely wrong. He made wrong conclusions. His mind was not working right. Sin was at fact, uh, still in effect. So reason is useful, and it is absolutely necessary but we must understand that it operates within the constraints of sin, how sin is still even working uh, within the believer. And even this renewed uh, reason must operate within the constraints of revelation. So again, it's back to the question, how does God reveal himself to us? What body of information are we to apply our reason to? Um, how are we to understand him? What reason are we to apply uh, to this revelation? And the answer is, is revelation, capital, capital R, revelation. And as I put there on your outlines, there's two aspects of revelation that theologians speak of, general revelation and special revelation. Uh, the special revelation, uh, that is the Bible, uh, verse I put there for you, 2 Timothy 3 is a critical one there, showing the scope uh, that scripture is uh, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. On the other hand, general revelation, that is the creation, uh, and there's two critical texts that people usually mention in this discussion, Psalm 19 and Romans 1.20. So here, general revelation, or the, the creation, is promised to teach us about the glory of God. It shows his handiwork, and it shows his attributes of power and his godness. So those are the things that general revelation 
promises to show us. Uh, from that brief summary, we obviously see that special revelation is much broader, much more specific, albeit broader, and much more thorough, whereas general revelation promises are more narrow. It's not that it's less good, it's just more narrow. Fewer things are promised to be taught by general revelation than special. Um, and also we must remember that either of these revelations looked at with our fallen and, and yet-to-be-perfected reasons uh, make no uh, promises of being perfectly interpreted and perfectly understood. Uh, even when revelation is seen with renewed minds, we are prone to misinterpret it. Uh, hence, we see Christians disagreeing with each other about uh, statements in Scripture. We see scientists disagreeing with each other about what nature out there says. So uh, that does not mean that there's a problem either with the revealer, God himself, or with the revelation, the Bible or um, the, the statements by general revelation. It does not mean there's a problem with the revealer or with revelation. It means there's a problem with us. It's our problem of sin uh, making faulty interpretations. Um, interestingly, one modern... Uh, Day-Age proponent says that nature is the 67th book of the Bible. And as such, he says it's inerrant and cannot lie. And his next conclusion is that since nature is inerrant, the discoveries of scientists are perfect. They make no mistakes. Um, This last point is obviously a a failure of logic. Uh, It's incorrect to say that just because general revelation is true, and we agree with that, that the observations and conclusions of scientists are guaranteed to be true. If that was true, why would scientists be revising their theories every decade and coming up with some improvement? The whole point of the science method is to critique the past and and ideally keep pressing towards more truth. That's part of the process. Um, It's kind of like the Roman Catholic Church saying that a a true statement of confession by Peter means that everybody who follows him uh, is inerrant also. We agree that Peter Peter made a true confession of faith but it's a huge jump and error in logic to say that all those who follow after him do the same thing. Um, So we must not um, let them say truthfully that general revelation is true and then jump to the conclusion that no mistakes can be pulled out of the observation of this general revelation. Uh, The creation indeed does not lie, but we are prone, unfortunately, to misinterpret it. A prominent analogical days proponent makes a very similar remark, a bit more uh, sort of polished and um, uh, wise, but still the same error. He says that uh, the created realm, and here I'll quote, speaks truly, so appearances cannot be deceiving. He then says the universe appears to be old, so if the earth is actually young, then there's a deception, a lie going on here. Um, There's a, a couple responses here. One is that general revolution never promises to tell us how old the stars are. Uh, It doesn't attach date labels to any fossils. It purely presents this information and it it promises to show us, uh, again, those things in Romans 120 and Psalm 19 about God's godness, about his great power, uh, his handiwork. It doesn't promise to teach us anything about age. So he's loading a lot more on general revelation than it promises to tell us. Uh, The fact that human beings, and also makes no promise of being rightly interpreted, as I've already said, Um, And also, if it did say it was old and it turned out to be young, there would be a lie. But the fact is that special revelation tells us it's young, as we discussed last week. So there is a clear statement, hey, I'm young, and then we're saying there's a lie. It's our misinterpretation of a certain set of facts that leads to a contradiction that we then have to resolve one way or another. So, um, as I mentioned before, I'm not going to go into all the evidence and try and refute all the dating methods, etc., that scientists put out there. There's many able uh, creation science ministries that you can look up. Uh, footnote that'll be in my manuscript on the website lists a few of those that have been useful in my study. But there's a lot of resources out there to show you that uh, there's certain conclusions being made by uh, scientists, natural and physical scientists, but uh, we need to be critical of those conclusions. At the same time, we still accept the validity and the potential for truth to be sto- spoken by that evidence. The evidence just needs to be rightly interpreted. Well, one uh, particularly egregious discrepancy between the biblical record and the interpretation of evidence I want to handle just briefly is the order of events. This is the very bottom of your uh, back page. And it's a bit ironic to me that the day-agers, in trying to accommodate uh, this time frame, uh, they end up with days that are in the wrong order. as you'll see there, a comparison in the third column. You just cannot you change the definition of day. It still does not match up. And it's precisely this problem that has led to the day-agers to say, you know, 
uh, non-contiguous days. And it's led to the framework hypothesizers to say, well, the days just aren't in order. So uh, Christians have seen there's a problem trying to reconcile this order. And unfortunately, they've come up with other solutions uh, to this problem. Not quite the solution of ditching the science order and accepting the Bible order, but they are realizing this error. But it leads then to the point of what is our, what is our priority? What is our starting point? Um, as I just said, the ultimate conclusion should be to accept the starting point of scripture, and then we can dismiss these wrong conclusions of science. Unfortunately, those who haven't gone that far are um, trying to get scripture to fit into the mold of science, and they have this backwards. Uh, we should really be holding uh, scripture higher than nature, not the other way around, which is what they're doing. Um, they, are, unfortunately, are interpreting scripture in the light of an interpretation of nature. They should be interpreting nature in the light of scripture. This then leads to how to read the Bible. Uh, obviously, fundamental thing. Here we have a little vocabulary lesson. Um, the word perspicuity, that's uh, a $5 word meaning clearly expressed and easily understood. Uh, the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture was a vital key tenet of the Protestant Reformation. The reformers wanted to take the Bible out of the cloister, out of the hands of the experts, and put it in the hands of the everyman. This is why they translated it into the vernacular, that is the local languages, and why they sold it on the streets for as cheaply as they could, at great risk to themselves. Uh, people running across Europe being chased by the um, clergy police in order to continue to sell these Bibles. Um, there's good reason why the papacy feared this. Uh, they feared it because they did not think the common man was able, was enlightened enough to read the scriptures for themselves, and they feared the common man learning things that they didn't agree with, that they didn't support. Um, they felt that the reading and interpretation of the scriptures must be reserved for the experts. Uh, but I say this is the very same error um, and authoritarianism that the day-agers, framework hypothesis, and analogical dayers are acting out. They think the average man is a simpleton when he reads those sentences in Genesis, evening and morning were the second or the third or the fourth day, they think is a, a simpleton for understanding it as an actual day. Um, the papists of the 1500s wanted the people to depend on the authorized interpreters. After all, those men had studied at the best universities. They had all the degrees. What I say is that the non-calendar day creationists are doing the exact same thing today when they say that we don't have the same plain reading understanding. Um, the only problem, and I think they're actually making it worse, in the 1500s, you had to trust the doctors of divinity. These days, they're accepting us, or uh, asking us to accept the conclusions of the doctors of physics, the doctors of philosophy, uh, the doctors of biology. Meanwhile, many of today's doctors of divinity uh, say that they have special insight into the scriptures to see a, a special analogical uh, day language meaning, a special poetic framework that is not backed up elsewhere in scripture. Um, so I think they're, they're making an even worse mistake. And the end result is where does it leave the common man? All too often, it leaves us with the Bible on the shelf and our head in our hands crying, you know what, go ahead and teach me. I can't learn anything myself. And that is not how God intended to communicate with us. Um, and I admit, at the same time that the perspicuity of Scripture is vital, uh, there are things that take careful investigation. Not everything is equally plain. And the doctrine of Scripture, as articulated in the Westminster Confession, and I put the point there. Uh, it's chapter 1.7 on the back page summary outline. You can read that for yourselves. It's acknowledged that not all details are equally clear. Uh, things take investigating. As Brad mentioned today, the, the whole technique of, of comparing scripture to scripture. Um, but the whole point is we don't come up with definitions outside of scripture and impose it. We look elsewhere in scripture to enlighten us on that usage in a particular instance. So it does take careful study. And that's what I attempted to do last week with the uh, resolving the issue between Genesis 1 and 2. Do we impose some theory of how or what Genesis 1 or 2 is supposed to be from outside of Scripture, or do we look elsewhere in Scripture for how to reconcile that? And we actually came up with uh, two ways to reconcile Genesis 1 and 2, and there's a third that is perfectly valid, all three avoiding any need to excuse one as real history. Um, so all told, I firmly believe that there are no errors in Scripture, that when we rightly investigate it, we'll see that when we pray to God, ask for his mercy, ask for his illumination, he will see fit to do so and show us uh, that there's no need to excuse what is clear. And by this, I mean the day's special creation and, and historical unity of gen all 31 verses of Genesis 1. We don't need to excuse that just because some details might take some careful investigation. But unfortunately, many Christians do, uh, to varying degrees, dismiss some of these details 
They dismiss the clear teaching of the Bible in, fa- in favor of the unbiblical system of evolution, even if it's only the time frame of evolution that they hold on to. Uh, this then leads to uh, how we interpret scripture. Because uh, we can agree with these other orthodox theologians that scripture is the ultimate authority. We can agree that it's uh, inerrant, it's free of mistakes, but still we lead to vi- widely varying interpretations of understanding. Um, I mentioned that the framework hypothesis, their interpretive method is to say that it's allegorical poetry uh, because it involves symmetry. Uh, they say scripture is true, so they agree with us on this point, but they say it's true allegory. And we also agree that allegory can tr- prove true points, but we don't agree with their application of it here. Uh, analogical dayers have another interpretive method. Uh, they say that the time of Genesis 1 is analogous God time, not exactly the same as human time, but approximately like it. They also say that God is using language that's sort of roughly parallel to our language, but not exactly like it. Uh, and these, both these methods, the method of the framework hypothesis and the method of the analogical days, are dangerous ground and can lead to dangerous consequences. Uh, first, regarding that interpretive technique of the framework hypothesis, we do need to beware because a symmetry necessitates allegory. There's lots of other places where there's symmetry that if it put into allegory, can lose its full meaning. Uh, indeed, one uh, Institute for Creation Research author has shown how there's a parallel, a symmetric parallel between the Redemption Week and the Creation Week. So if, redemption, or if Creation Week is, is just allegorical and there's a symmetry between it and Redemption Week, is the Redemption Week allegory? Um, and is there just a, a core kernel of truth that we're supposed to believe with you know, all these little details to make it look like a historical story that are just layered on top of it? Well, Paul and Moses and all these authors in between articulate a whole complex of historical facts related to the Redemption Week that we cannot just boil down to some nutshell that is the, the core, I forget there's some critical analysis German term, Kyrgyz or something like that, that speaks of this nutshell truth that all this stuff is layered around it. It's much more than that nutshell. The nutshell is truth. Uh, the nut core is truth, but everything built up on that is truth as well. We cannot... Uh, excuse that and uh, eliminate it. Well, then responding to the interpretive technique of the analogical dayers, and perhaps this is even more dangerous, I ask you, is there such a thing as God time that's different from our time? Is there such a thing as God language that's different from our language? To both these questions, it's an obvious no. Uh, If God has his own time and he has his own language, how are we to know where they ever intersect? Uh, uh, And a, a proper knowledge of God will make it clear that neither of these two things work. The old, God is eternal, right? That's a key attribute of God. He's eternal. He's outside of time. Time is for us. Time is for us to live and move in. It's not for him. There's no such thing as God time. A language God invented for him to be able to communicate with us and for us to communicate to each other. If there's a, this disjuncture between God language and our language, how do we know that anything he said makes any sense? So it, it's tragic that by introducing these other ideas of language and of time, uh, in effect, language becomes so flexible as to become meaningless. If language can mean whatever we feel it must need uh, mean here, it has no true meaning, and it can be bent and twisted around the proverbial wax nose. Well, again, I I don't think and I don't want you to assume that I um, assume some evil intent on the manufacturers of these other uh, theories. I, I know... Uh, B.B. Warfield, while he was a theistic evolutionist, he was an ardent defender of biblical inerrancy. And there's many seminary professors and seminary graduates who cling to the authority of scriptures, the infallible, inerrant word of God. But yet at the same time, they identify as true to some degree and they defend these evolutionary time frames. Uh, They do it by compromising uh, in these other theories. But I say they can't have it both ways. Uh, the preceding discussion makes it clear that all of these other theories are unbiblical uh, because they face the fallible conclusions of science above the infallible word of God. And then they look for ways to interpret scripture so as to fit that prior conclusion of the uh, the infallibility of their particular uh, interpretations of nature. Uh, The end result, and this is the ultimate implication, is that they make it impossible for us to know God. They make it impossible for us to read his Bible because the Bible is not the authority. If we need to move it into the mold of a particular, and I say a particular, interpretation of nature, how do we know? Ten years from now, a particular interpretation of the facts of nature is going to change. Does that mean the Bible changed? Well, maybe someday they'll realize that we need to ditch uh, the theories of science in favor 
of the Bible and not the other way around. Well, lastly, and this is a topic worthy of a whole other talk, uh, no doubt much more ably uh, dealt with by Pastor Kaiser, but I didn't want to pass over it. It's the issue of Gnosticism, um, and this relates to the nature of God and of reality. And again, I ask you, is, is God concerned with the physical world? And I hope you can give a resounding yes. Um, but the fact is, and it's something that's been around for the millennia of the church, is that there are always people around saying, oh, this, this lowly earth thing, it's just dirty. We need to get beyond this. Uh, we need to move beyond. And, and it has its roots in the fallen mind of pagan Greek philosophy who uh, held on to a dualism between the high and the low, the lower register, the upper register. Um, and they said that we need to aspire to these upper things, the earthly reality here is just dirty. We're trying to get beyond that. Um, they thought that material things needed to be left behind and we needed to grasp for the spiritual, which was pure and admirable. Uh, tragically, these Greek pagan ideas had made inroads to the church, even in the time of the apostles, and they unfortunately uh, have not gone away. And it was the Apostle John in his uh, second epistle, and it's verse 7 that I'll quote here. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So uh, basically what he's saying, Jesus really did have a body. Uh, you can't just say it was a phantasm, as the Gnostics said. Uh, even his resurrected body was real, as we know from the, the discussion with Doubting Thomas. There was a physical reality there. Uh, there were spiritual realities, yes, but also a physical reality. So when frameworkers make Genesis 1 a set of spiritual ideas, instead of a set of spiritual ideas and physical realities, they're starting down a dangerous path. Uh, was Jesus' resurrection just a spiritual idea, something we're supposed to aspire to, to follow his model, which is what liberals and um, new orthodox have said, or is there a true physical reality there, a true physical hope we can look forward to? We don't need to go to the opposite end of the spectrum and overemphasize the physical to the elimination of the spiritual but we can't make either one of those endpoint exaggerations. We need to have a balance of the two, wherein God tells us he redeems us spiritually, he redeems us physically as well. Well, to conclude this all, um, we should not be surprised that the whole world is critical of these historic orthodox statements of the doctrine of creation. Uh, Peter told us this would happen. You turn with me to 2 Peter 3. Uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 7. He says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So here he's saying the, uh, these people willfully forget numerous things. And what is it? He lists them there. That the heavens came about by the word of God, that the earth was a watery planet, that the world was judged by flood, that the word is preserved by that same world is preserved by the same word that created it, and that the world will be judged by fire. He fully predicts that these five things are going to be overlooked. Should we be surprised to see scientists saying, oh, by the way, it was a dry, crusty planet at the beginning. Oh, there was never a universal flood. Oh, there was never a judgment in that effect. There's not going to be a destructive fire in the beginning. All five of these things are ignored by evolutionary theory. Why should we accept one of their mistaken conclusions when we know that all five are mistakes? They willfully forget these things. And Peter clarifies here that those who willfully forget if you look back to uh, verse 3, they're scoffers, walking according to their own lusts. These are lustful scoffers, people pursuing their own inward desires that are going after these conclusions, denying these truths of God. Uh, indeed, they've exchanged the truth of uh, God for a lie. And unfortunately, many Christians have jumped into the same bandwagon with them. Uh, Christians who have adopted old earth, local flood, deistic, uh, scientific materialism, are adopting at least some of the conclusions of these lustful scoffers. Uh, I respond to them with the Apostle Paul, and this is a quote from 2 Corinthians 6. What communion is light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has the believer with the unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell among them and and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. The light should be overcoming darkness, not incorporating darkness into it. Christ and Belial are in conflict. The believer and the unbeliever have different masters. The temple of God needs to be purged of idols. He is our father and we are his children. Failure to heed the plain words of Genesis is not a failure of uh, old or of young earth uh, scientific study. It's not a failure of uh, young earth exegetical scholarship. It's a failure of people to believe. The exact same failure was apparent uh, in reaction to Jesus' basic claims when he was walking the earth. We should not be surprised, unfortunately, that people deny these same truths today. And it's the Holy Spirit, uh, not our arguing, that is going to convince people. It's the Holy Spirit, not people's arguing, that convinced me when I was 26-year-old and got saved. And we need to pray for the same, same Holy Spirit to be working in them that is at work in us. And facing this world of unbelief, we must hold fast to these doctrines handed down to us. Uh, the scriptures are a beautiful, cohesive whole, and I hope I have endeavored accurately to show you this. Uh, we cannot be cafeteria Christians who pick and choose from one part over against the others. There's a family here among us in the congregation that has a family motto. Uh, we eat everything on our plate with a smile on our face, and we chew it thoroughly. Uh, this has vast uh, theological implications. We can't say, no, I'm just going to have my beans today and chew, 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 and, and, and I, I'm going to love my beans. Well, you've got to have your steak and your potatoes and your cream corn, etc. You cannot pick and choose. Uh, every facet of scripture is useful for, according to uh, 2 Timothy 3, the doctrine, the teaching, the reproof that we may grow into a complete person in the fullness of Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians. Uh, The wisdom of this world denies the supernatural. We need to affirm the supernatural. The wisdom of this world is pietistic. It denies uh, the earthly. We need to cling to both. We cannot pick one or the other. Our forefathers and uh, previous generations have labored to hold the line against these twin enemies, these twin extremes. They haven't, um, or they've walked in ages just like ours where people were not walking that middle road of the full truth. Uh, we must stand with them. Uh, though I say, actually, we must not be purely content to hold the line. Uh, we must not compromise. Our enemy does not compromise, and neither should we. Uh, currently, the state of Nebraska uh, permits homeschooling. It's only another legislative selection away until it's outlawed. Uh, currently, the PCA permits uh, calendar day creation theory to be held by ordained ministers. Who knows, someday when a Presbytery, or GA rather, will narrow that even further. We must be on the defensive. Indeed, the best offense is a good de- or best defense is a good offense. Uh, we do learn from the past. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And I ask and I beg and I pray that uh, untold future generations would be able to say with Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Let's pray. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. I stand in awe of your power, that power that created everything, your power that raised Jesus from the dead, your power that renews our hearts and minds. Please, O oh Lord, be working your power in us that we would come to a fuller knowledge of your truth and a greater measure of holiness in our lives. Please, O oh God, make us humble and teachable continually reforming the way we think to be in conformity with your will. This we ask in the name of our wonderful Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.